Welcome to EmergencyMedicineCases.com. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. In this episode 18, part 2, more emergency ultrasound pearls, pitfalls, and controversies, we bring back Dr. Greg Hall, Dr. Jordan Schenken, Dr. Paul Hannum, and Dr. Jason Fisher. Dr. Greg Hall is an emergency physician at Brantford General Hospital and assistant professor at McMaster University. He was the chief of the emergency department in Cambridge, Ontario for five years. He's a co-developer of EDI2, the Advanced Emergency Department Echo Course. He's a winner of multiple teaching awards, including Clinician of the Year for his ultrasound instruction. Dr. Jordan Chenkin is an emergency physician at Sunnybrook Health Science Centre and an assistant professor at the University of Toronto. He is a master instructor with the Canadian Emergency Ultrasound Society and an instructor for the EDI and the EDI2 ultrasound courses. He's conducted and published research on training for ultrasound-assisted procedures. Dr. Paul Hannum is an emergency physician and chief of emergency services at Toronto East General Hospital and a lecturer at the University of Toronto. He's an instructor for the EDI and the EDI2 courses and lectures on emergency ultrasound. Dr. Jason Fisher is an emergency physician at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto, where he is the physician lead for emergency ultrasound. He's an assistant professor at the University of Toronto. He's lectured and instructed physicians internationally on ultrasound and pediatric emergency medicine and leads the emergency ultrasound program at Sick Kids Hospital. Let's move on to our next case and talk about pediatric soft tissue infection and joint infection. The case is that of an 11-month-old female who presents with a swollen right lower leg around the ankle with a fever. An x-ray is done and it's normal, and blood work shows mildly elevated white blood cell count and inflammatory markers. Sometimes when we're presented with a patient who has warm red swollen skin, it's very difficult to tell clinically whether they've got cellulitis requiring antibiotics or whether they've got an underlying abscess that requires incision and drainage, or more rarely, if the patient looks sick or is really febrile in a lot of pain, whether there might be necrotizing fasciitis requiring OR debridement. It's sometimes even difficult to tell clinically if the redness overlying a joint is septic arthritis or septic bursitis or just a cellulitis. So Dr. Fisher, how can emergency ultrasound help us sort out this differential in those cases where it's not so obvious clinically? And the second part of that question is, has it been shown to change our management in using emergency ultrasound in these kind of cases? Yeah, so it's a great application for pediatrics and adult emergency medicine. And I think when we think about soft tissue infection, we're thinking about a spectrum of disease that takes us from cellulitis all the way to abscess. And when we see cellulitis using ultrasound, we see this cobblestone edematous pattern where we lose the architecture of the soft tissue. And then we see that coming together as a hypoechoic fluid collection. Now using ultrasound and determining where you are on this spectrum may not change your practice pattern because we know there's great variation in how physicians practice even once they identify an abscess. But at least it allows us to know where we're at. It also allows the identification of lymph nodes. We can identify a lymph node using flow, as well as pseudoaneurysms. And you know, cutting into those, never a good idea, as well as identifying foreign bodies. And so I think we gain a lot of information. When you look at the literature, Tyel had a paper in 2006, and that was of adults, and he looked at how does ultrasound change people's practice, and 56% of management changed. In both groups, whether they were pre-test, they were going to do no drainage, or pre-test, they required further drainage, it changed it in all pre-test probabilities. So that's pretty powerful stuff. 
And then Adam Civitz in 2009, him and his group, they showed 22% change in management in pediatrics. And so I think that that's pretty helpful. Knowing the spectrum of soft tissue disease as well from cellulitis to abscess helps us to identify even more emerging conditions, one being necrotizing fasciitis. In 1999, Chow put together a case series of kids with necrotizing fasciitis, and he kind of gave us a guideline of what to look for. And again, this is a piece of that clinical puzzle. And there was fascial thickening with fluid accumulation. There was this turbid or loculated fluid down by the fascial plane. And then finally, lots of subcutaneous tissue swelling. And this has been, you know, I think the experience of most physicians that have seen true necrotizing fasciitis is it's almost edema out of proportion with what you're seeing clinically. And it also kind of gives us some guidelines. One is that you always want to check flow if you're going to cut into an abscess and make sure that it is indeed an abscess. And also to define the borders and define those borders well to make sure you're not dealing with something that could be a necrotizing fasciitis or an abscess that's much deeper than you believe clinically. I was actually amazed to look at the numbers of how poor we are at determining whether someone has an abscess or not when they come in with red skin. I mean, I always like to think that I could tell clinically, but it turns out I guess I can't, or as a group, I guess we can't. So it sounds like this is a great application. Any, any comments about soft tissue infection? In those studies, both of them made mention of the fact that often where the clinician thought the abscess was, was not anywhere close to where it turned out to be. And actually it could often be at the border or even slightly beyond the border of the erythema. And certainly anecdotally, I've had several cases of that where you know, I'm suspecting abscess, big erythematous area, and it turns out the abscess is not where I thought it was. And mm-hmm. so it saved me doing you know, a dry incision and get to right where the right spot is. And the literature supports, again, also for peritonsillar abscess, where we can use transvaginal probe or intracavitary probe, if you don't want to horrify your patient, to uh, detect an abscess there. And again, the literature shows that not only are we lousy at determining whether someone just has tonsillitis versus abscess, the ENT guys are horrible at it as well. Um, Not much better than flipping a coin. So uh, being able to find the abscess and then put into your algorithm whether you incise and drain or or not, I think there's going to be more studies looking at which way is the best way to go. There's certainly a lot heading that way, but at least we'll know what we're dealing with mm-hmm. rather than guessing. I, I will do a reassessment sometimes where maybe I didn't get as much pus back as I thought I should. Then once in a while, I'll apply the probe again and see, is there still another, is there still some remaining fluid? I just didn't, maybe I didn't break down inoculation enough. And so I, I do, I use that. Same thing when you're doing a paracentesis, paracentesis, I'll use it as a reassessment because I go, well, I've drained a few liters off, but I thought I could probably drain a bit more. And you can just go back and check and see where the position of the needle is with respect to the abdominal wall and, and the bowels and everything and, and say, oh yeah, there's, a, the pocket, there's still a little bit of a pocket I can drain a bit further. So uh, no question. I, I, I pride myself on being able to get more fluid out than the, uh, the guys doing it blind. So the oncologists and uh, uh, some of our internists, I, usually if the patient comes to me, I said, I'm going to get at least as much as they got, if not more. And I've never been proven wrong. I think that's really the value in a more general sense about ultrasound. It's really causing us to question lots of things that we're doing where we were wrong often, as it turns out. So whether it's uh, localizing the abscess or I think in many other procedural examples, I guess central lines being a common example, where I suspect that the rate of complications was in fact very underreported. And when you do look with an ultrasound machine, you find that uh, there are these anatomic variants, which are, as it turns out, very common and probably do increase safety quite significantly. So the, it changes the landscape fairly quickly. And it's certainly not for every application of ultrasound, but for a few of them, it makes a big, big difference. Okay, let's continue on with the case. 
So we've got our, our kitty here with warm, red, swollen leg. The astute emergency doctor puts the uh, ultrasound on the leg and it shows a fluid collection with cortical disruption along the anterior right tibia with deep tissue infection. Antibiotics are started and a STAT CT is ordered in the middle of the night and the diagnosis turns out to be a periosteal abscess and the patient goes to the OR just a few hours later. In this case, the patient had cortical disruption along the, the tibia. How do we use emergency ultrasound to determine whether a patient might have cortical disruption? How can we use ultrasound in cases where we're suspecting a fracture, for example? Right. There's a few applications that have proven to be very beneficial, I think, in pediatrics. The first is, of course, in head injury. And we know that having a skull fracture increases your risk of having an intracranial bleed. So using the linear high-frequency probe, we can identify these skull fractures. And we can, therefore, go on and, and study those patients further to make sure they don't have an intracranial bleed. And that's, you know, with... But know, I'm so good at reading skull x-rays. I mean, why would <laughs> yeah. I need that? Well, again, just kidding. it's just... Uh, when was the last time you read a skull x-ray? Correctly? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, sorry. Go yeah, on. so it's just... But it's fast. I mean, you're in the room and you, you can do that pretty quickly. I think we, we talk about sternal fractures a lot and being able to identify a sternal fracture. In these particular cases, though, where we're looking at infection around bone... You know, you get a pretty good sense looking at the cortex. And again, this is where it's nice to look at healthy cortex versus one that's a little bit disrupted. And you can see maybe there's more going on than you might have garnered from just a simple x-ray. I think we still need more studies in this field. But I think with the emergence of MRSA, like this case points out, deep tissue infections definitely can be picked up with ultrasound. So we've talked a little bit about cellulitis versus abscess, deep tissue infection, neck fash. Just a couple episodes ago, episode 16, with Dr. Yaffe and Dr. Ghosh, we had discussed the challenges of managing acute monoarthritis in the ED and mentioned that emergency ultrasound may help to detect joint fluid, but we had talked about how it doesn't really get you any closer to a definitive diagnosis of septic arthritis. Can you tell us a little bit about some clinical situations where emergency ultrasound would change management when it comes to working up septic arthritis? Sure. Well, I think that it's pretty difficult for an emergency doctor, even the, the most highly skilled, to comment on the consistency of joint fluid and say this is a septic joint effusion versus toxic synovitis. And, and so I think the real advantage to ultrasound is the procedural advantage in having uh, ultrasound-guided real-time arthrocentesis. But I think the EM operator whose skills are still evolving can work towards determining a periosteal abscess versus a, a fusion versus cellulitis versus an infected bursa. And when you talk to orthopedists, this does change their approach to a patient in the operating room. So if you're in a situation where perhaps you don't have all the specialty services at your disposal, I think learning to differentiate between these different entities is beneficial for the emergency doctor. So in the pediatric situation, when you have a, a kid with a limp, can you give us an example of how you could use emergency ultrasound to help out that kind of situation? Using the same skill base that you use for nerve blocks, that you use for central lines and peripheral IV access, you can direct your needle and get a good sample of that joint fluid. Don't forget too, if, if you use your bedside ultrasound and you see absolutely no fluid pocket, it saves you doing a useless tap. 
So that's another another big one. You know, when you've got that swollen ankle or something where I think there's an effusion, there's no way to be sure I'm going to put a needle in. The old days where you knew that even if there was an effusion, the chances of you getting it blindly were not great. So if you didn't get anything, the question was, did I just miss the effusion or was there not one there for me to get? Well, now you can look. And if there is no effusion, I'm not going to bother tapping it. And I've had several cases like that. And likewise, I've had others where, wow, that's a huge effusion. I'm going for it. Yeah, actually just a couple of weeks ago, just after I had done the episode uh, on septic arthritis, I had this guy who was a construction worker who came in with a big swollen knee with some redness. I thought clinically it was probably a bursitis, but I wanted to put a needle into it to rule out septic arthritis. And so I put a needle in and I didn't get much fluid. And then I tried a different spot and then I tried to stick the ultrasound on it and then I wasn't sure. And then I stuck a needle in again and I, I went in like three or four times because I was refusing to accept that I couldn't get fluid out of this because, you know, and then finally I called the orthopedic surgeon and I said, look, I got this guy who might be septic arthritis. I think he had a, his ESR was a bit elevated and his white count was a bit elevated. And of course the orthopedic surgeon just came down and said, I think it's just a bursitis, just give them a bit of Keflex and send them home. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, <laughs> Right, so at least you can save some time. It isn't nearly fast enough for you. It isn't nearly fast enough for you. So in a lot of these cases with cellulitis, you're wondering whether there might be a foreign body there. And as we know, x-ray isn't great at picking up foreign bodies. You know, the radio-opaque ones it'll pick up, but things like wood and that don't show up very well on x-ray. Can ultrasound help us out in terms of picking up foreign bodies? Definitely. I think you hit on the high point is that, you know, we have trouble seeing radiolucent foreign bodies, wood, plastic. But, you know, when you have the ultrasound machine, you, you know, you got the complete package. So you can identify the foreign body. You can needle locate it. You can deliver your anesthesia agent, and then you can remove it. And we had a great case just this week of a 10-year-old girl that had a massive splinter that was up beyond her fingernail. And you couldn't really feel it, but you knew there was some infection there. And so with ultrasound, we identified it. We actually did a forearm nerve block to put her hand to sleep. And then we went in with a, a set of forceps and watched the forceps in real time surround the chunk of wood, clamp on it, and pull it out. And it was cool. And she thought it was cool. And her parents <laughs> thought it was really cool because it had been really bothering her. So, you know, when you compare that to a trip to the OR, which could have potentially been what she would have had previously, or someone digging around and, and mucking around in her finger, I mean, this was pretty slick. And so I think there's a lot of utility. As far as the literature goes, it's good, but not great. There's some studies saying that you'll probably get a 75% sensitivity for uh, some of these foreign bodies. And generally, the smaller they are and materials that aren't quite as uh, echogenic, so some small pieces of plastic, tiny pieces of glass, they're hard to see by any modality if they're not radiolucent. So I think it's, it's a great rule-in. If you see it, it's very useful and great for getting it out as well. But if you don't see it, um, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're done. And, and it's, a, there's, it's a finesse thing, too, to locate them. You're often, you have to get that very thin ultrasound beam in a, 
in a good tangential relation with the foreign body. So there's a lot of subtle movements and, and fanning of the probe and, and rotating it to, uh, to get it. And so you have to be patient and you have to understand that some of the smaller ones, you're going to have a hard time finding by any modality. So it's great when it works, but I warn people to expect that there are going to be those foreign bodies. They just can't locate by ultrasound or plain film and, and have to take the appropriate steps. And I think that just highlights like a great point for every application we've talked about. Just like everything we do, we have to know the limitations of, of every diagnostic study we do. And so I think that's important and something that can't be lost in our training. You know, it's not just the acquisition of images. It's not just the interpretation of the images. It's understanding the characteristics of that test. Dr. Fisher, you had mentioned some of the key uses of emergency ultrasound in pediatrics. You're one of the few docs in the world, I guess, who have an actual fellowship in pediatric emergency ultrasound. Super cool. Could you just review for us quickly what some of the other key differences that there are in pediatrics versus adult in terms of use of emergency ultrasound? Right, right. So I think it's, a, it's important to recognize that pediatric emergency medicine emergency ultrasound is really in its infancy. I mean, this is a disruptive technology that we're just developing a large operator base in the adult world. And so because of not having a lot of trained MDs in freestanding pediatric EM academic centers, we're quite a bit behind. So I think when we look at the application base that's there now, we can translate most of those to good effect to pediatrics. Uh, knowing how hydrated my patients are. I really like knowing what their cardiac function is before I start giving them fluid. But I, I'm really big on the nerve blocks. I think nerve blocks are really an emergent pain control tool that we can really apply to pediatrics and apply to good effect. And so to say where we are now, I think we're the big clunky cell phone. I think we've got a long way to go till we get to the smartphone. But I think the tools and the, the people are starting to be put into place to really promote that innovation. All right, let's change gears again. We're going to go on to a new case. This is a case of a first trimester bleed. It's 2 a.m., and your next patient is a 27-year-old female, G1P0, with a two-day history of intermittent lower abdominal cramping and vaginal spotting. Her pregnancy was diagnosed by a home pregnancy test, and she hasn't been assessed by her physician yet. Her gestational age is six weeks by dates, although her periods were somewhat irregular and she's not 100% sure of her last menstrual period. She has mild nausea, no fever, and no chills. Her urination has been normal recently. She's otherwise healthy, is on no medications, and has no allergies. She denies fertility treatment, IUDs, prior STDs, or previous ectopic pregnancy or abdominal surgery. On exam, she's in no apparent distress with normal vital signs. Abdominal exam reveals some mild suprapubic tenderness with no masses or guarding. The pelvic examination shows scant blood, the cervix is closed, there's no cervical motion tenderness or adnexal tenderness. Her blood work comes back with a beta HDG of 5,500, a normal CBC, and she's RH positive. The patient's anxious to know about the status of her pregnancy. Dr. Hannum, can you please review for us the basic rule-in, rule-out criteria for detecting an intrauterine pregnancy with emergency ultrasound and how this can help us in our decision-making at 2 a.m. when we're faced with a patient with a first trimester bleed? 
Absolutely. So I like this case because I think it's something that we all see uh, very frequently in any community setting. And the approach has changed significantly since the advent of ultrasound for us. I think there's a couple of different things going on. Just with that presentation, I'm wondering whether this person has an ectopic pregnancy or not. That's my initial question to ask. There are other things on the differential diagnosis, of course, but that's the one thing that I really want to rule out. In my own experience, I find that the patient is often less concerned about the possibility of ectopic pregnancy. They really want to know how the pregnancy is going to go and what's likely to happen. And that's a reasonable thing to ask. But the agendas are just slightly different. So uh, with that in mind, how would I approach this using an ultrasound machine? Well, uh, I guess, first of all, you need to be sure that you've seen the whole uterus. So when you put the ultrasound probe on, you need to be really clear on what exactly is uterine tissue versus uh, anything else. It means that you've got to identify the cervix. You've got to go all the way up and see the whole fundus as well. And to confirm, you've got to see that the uterus does have an interface or be in juxtaposition to the bladder. That way you know that uh, this is in fact the uterus that you're looking at. You should then interrogate the uterus in two planes. I'm not going to talk about any uh, adnexal findings or anything like that. I'm sure in other centers they may well be looking at that. Uh, I tend to focus just on the presence or absence of an IUP because those are the findings I can be confident in. If the uterus has no gestational sac, you can be 100% sure that you've identified the uterus then there's nothing beyond an endometrial stripe, there is no sac inside, you are pretty much done. That is to say, you're kind of done. You can say that there's no intrauterine pregnancy. That said, you still have to go on and check for free fluid, regardless of what the beta HCG is. With that story that we've just been given, the beta HCG actually makes no difference to me. The reason for that is, if this woman unfortunately did have an ectopic pregnancy, it's actually more likely to rupture with time. As the ectopic pregnancy, in fact, dies, and the beta-HCG can go down, and you can, in turn, get an inflammatory response, that's when they're more likely to rupture. For reference, I had, we've had a case at our center where a woman came in, was unsure of her dates. She had a beta-HCG of 8. She had a lot of free fluid and was very unstable, which, in, in turn, did turn out to be a ruptured ectopic pregnancy. This was almost, a, well, almost by definition, a negative beta-HCG, and yet was a ruptured ectopic. So it just goes to show, it doesn't matter what the uh, beta-HCG is. There's actually been a study published to show that a third of uh, ectopic pregnancies have a beta-HCG of less than 1,500. So it doesn't really matter. The point is, forget about the beta-HCG. Just to get back to the ultrasound findings, if you have uh, looked at the whole uterus, if you see something resembling a gestational sac, it's going to be contained within the uterus and look black or hypoechoic. To be a normal IUP or intrauterine pregnancy, this sac needs to have at least five millimeters of uterine tissue surrounding it. Actually, seven millimeters is probably a safer cutoff. You've got to measure the size of the sac next. If it's less than 25 millimeters, it could still be a pseudogestational sac of ectopic pregnancy, so you still have to be careful. Now you look within the sac. If you see a white ring on either plane within the gestational sac, this is the yolk sac, and you can therefore determine this person has an IUP. If you see something else in there, look for a heartbeat. If you do see the heartbeat, you also can be sure you have an intrauterine pregnancy. Remember, all of this has to be within the uterus, which sits beside the bladder. If you can't do all of this, it is not a definite IUP, and you still need formal imaging. That is to say, all we're answering is whether this person has an intrauterine pregnancy or not. If they don't have an intrauterine pregnancy, 
One needs to assume that they have another cause for their bleeding, or they may in fact have an ectopic pregnancy, and as such, you should treat them as such. If they're unstable, you call for a consultant and they need to go to the operating room. If they are stable, then you can just get a formal ultrasound later that day. So here's a quick review of how to rule in and rule out a definite IUP on emergency bedside ultrasound. First, be sure you're seeing the entire uterus. You identify the cervix and sweep all the way up to the fundus. And make sure that you see the bladder right next to, in juxtaposition to the uterus. Next, you need to look in two planes for the uterus. And if there's no gestational sac, then there's no IUP. If you do see a gestational sac, then it must be surrounded by at least seven millimeters of tissue and the gestational sac itself must be at least two and a half centimeters. Then you look for the yolk sac, which looks like a white ring within the gestational sac. If you see a yolk sac and a gestational sac, and you can identify the uterus in juxtaposition to the bladder, then you have a definite IUP. What helps even more is if you identify the fetal heartbeat. Then once you've determined whether there's an IUP or not, you're still not done, check in Morrison's pouch and in the pelvis for free fluid. So we have, we have several possible diagnoses. We have, is it an ectopic? Is it an intrauterine pregnancy? Or is it a really early intrauterine pregnancy we just can't see yet? And so in terms of trying to help differentiate between the early one that's just too small to see, if the person's not sure of their dates at all, but we have a beta above the discriminatory threshold, then our approach is to assume ectopic till proven otherwise. So in other words, if the beta is high enough that I should be seeing a fetus, then, and I don't, then I'm going to assume that's an ectopic. However, beta alone, we can't hang your hat on, but it just helps us decide where to go in terms of managing these patients. This patient is six weeks by dates, we're guessing. Can you just review for us what the discriminatory cutoffs are for assessing whether there's an IUP there in terms of for dates and for beta HCG? Can you just give us some numbers there? In terms of normal ultrasound findings, at five weeks, you would expect to see a gestational sac. Commonly, your beta HCG might be approximately 1,500. At around five and a half weeks, maybe into six weeks, you would expect to see a yolk sac. At six weeks, you'll see the fetal pole. And around six to seven weeks, you start to expect to see the fetal heart rate. Now, all of this depends, of course, whether you're using transabdominal or transvaginal probes. If you have the ability, and you can clear it with your infection control team at your hospital, a transvaginal probe is going to give you a lot more detail at any of these dates. And of course, you can be a lot more confident in your findings. About one in 80 of all comers of first trimester bleeds will have an ectopic pregnancy, which comprises about 10% of maternal mortality. About half of these patients with ectopics will have no identifiable risk factors, like this patient has. Uh, and almost half of these patients are misdiagnosed on their first visit to the doctor. And as we all know, the physical exam, the pelvic examination is highly unreliable in terms of ruling out a topic. That leads nicely into the kind of pitfalls that we see with emergency ultrasound and, and ruling out a topic. Mm -hmm. Can you just review for us some of the common pitfalls when it comes to evaluating these patients in the first trimester? Several of us have done a lot of teaching on this kind of topic, and uh, I would say the most common first trimester pitfalls that I've seen uh, number one was that people don't manage to see the whole uterus. There's often some bowel gas which is overlying the top of the fundus and you don't actually see the whole uterus. And again, unless you have a complete scan, you've seen the whole thing, that's not a determinate scan. 
Uh, number two, not incorporating the risk factors for a heterotopic pregnancy. It's obviously very important that you ask about fertility treatments, PID, previous ectopic surgeries, etc. That's going to absolutely change your likelihood of a heterotopic pregnancy and decrease it from upwards of 1 in 30,000, for example, to 1 in 200, for example, if someone's on a uh, and fertility treatments. So again, in that setting, your emergency ultrasound or your point of care ultrasound is gonna be much less useful. If someone is on fertility treatment and you do see an, an intrauterine pregnancy, you have no idea whether they have an ectopic pregnancy or not. I would definitely look at the right upper quadrant there and I would get a formal scan regardless. I just wanna emphasize there that one of the key pitfalls is not looking at the right upper quadrant for patients who may have the possibility of an ectopic Always look at the right upper quadrant because if you see fluid there, then you've got to think twice about working up the diagnosis of ectopic pregnancy. One of the pitfalls that comes up not infrequently is people are not routinely checking the right upper quadrant after they've confirmed an IEP. The original data looking at the incidence of heterotopic pregnancy came up with this number of 1 in 30,000. Uh, that wasn't actually measured. It was calculated based on some theoretical values that were put into an equation and they came up with this number of 1 in 30,000. Now that um, we're doing this more frequently, the rate of heterotopic has been shown to be probably much higher than that in a patient without a risk for heterotopic. And some studies I've seen have shown the rate to be up in the order of one in six to 8,000. Obviously that's higher if patients have risk factors for it. So one of the things that I've changed personally and I recommend changing um, and doing routinely is even if you do confirm an intrauterine pregnancy in a patient with uh, concerning signs and symptoms, um, I routinely check the right upper quadrant for free fluid just to reduce that risk even further. And I think that's something that everybody should start incorporating into their practice as well. Finally, I think to assume that the white blob that you might be able to sort of make out within the gestational sac looks enough like a ring that I'm going to say, yeah, that probably is a, an intrauterine pregnancy, I would not be comfortable with that. Uh, if it's not a white ring uh, distinct within the gestational sac, it's not an intrauterine pregnancy as far as I'm concerned. Clearly, if you're getting further along in the pregnancy, you will no longer be able to see the yolk sac. You'll see the fetus and you may even see a heartbeat in that case. That's much more reassuring. I, I mentioned that the patients are often quite concerned about how the pregnancy is likely to go. It can leave, lead us to a false sense of security sometimes. I think it's at seven weeks. If you see a heartbeat at seven weeks, you have a 90% likelihood of carrying to term. If you see a heartbeat on ultrasound at 11 weeks, then you are something like 96% likelihood to carry to term, which is great. That's very reassuring. And if the patient is asking you, of course, you want to be able to say that, you know, things are likely to be okay. I'm going to get the formal ultrasound in a few days, perhaps, but things look pretty good. Where this does not apply is in the second trimester. And so I, I think it's something that we have to be very careful with. What Dr. Hannum's referring to here is that in the second and third trimesters, you have to be thinking about things like previa and abruption. And our first trimester ultrasound really doesn't play a role in those kinds of diagnoses. So if your patient's not sure about the dates, there'll be a possibility that they're in the second and third trimester and not assume that it's a first trimester bleed and use your bedside ultrasound to reassure the patient. One pitfall I'm seeing is they see an IEP, they call it, but when they don't, they call it an determinant. And, you know, and everyone has their threshold and it comes with experience that'll change. Where I'm finding the pitfall is, is, is properly incorporating it cognitively. So how do you incorporate this in your clinical decision-making? And so the danger I see is some people, they get an indeterminate scan or no definitive uterine pregnancy, and then they decide, well, I'll have them get a formal scan in a week. Well, 
you, at this point, it's ectopic till proven otherwise. And so you, you need to ask yourself, look, you have a patient sitting in front of you that as, as far as the scan has told you, it still could be an ectopic. You have to ask yourself, are you comfortable letting a patient sit at home for a week with the diagnosis of ectopic? And I think most of us aren't. And so the mistakes I've seen um, in, in several different institutes is where people have gone down that path. They did the scan fine and they documented it fine. Where they fell down was what they did with the information. So I think this particular physician needs to be re-instructed on how to deal with the information they get. And that, that's an important distinction to make. You've got an answer and make sure you deal appropriately with the answer you've just generated. And if you say, well, it's an indeterminate scan, the patient's extremely stable, I think this is just a very early intraoperative pregnancy clinically. This history fits with it. Then maybe it's appropriate to wait till the next day to get your formal. On the other hand, you have a patient with a lot of pain, bleeding. I can't see a pregnancy. Well, that's ectopic till proven otherwise. And I'm going to either get a formal right now, or I'm going to have the gynecologist come down right now. But I'm not going to send them home and see what happens in a few more days. So that's that's probably one of the biggest pitfalls I'm seeing uh, materializing now that we have a lot of people trained to do this. Just one more thing. I mm -hmm. think there is a real skill to doing the intracavitary exam, but there's a real benefit to that exam. Like you clearly get better images, you can make a clear diagnosis. So I think a lot of providers are kind of scared off by the skill that it takes and that the image is a little bit different than what they're used to looking at. But you know, I would encourage people to practice that skill to take advantage of the opportunity to learn that skill because I think there is a real benefit. Just to show you how far things have come, at least uh, at our site, uh, our chief of radiology about six months ago asked us, why are we not using the intracavitary probe? Why We should be using it more. He wants us to use it more because you get much better images that way and he's trying to encourage us to use it. We're having trouble with infection control and getting it cleaned in our site, but uh, uh, it's reassuring that their radiologists actually want us to use the intracavitary probe for exactly that reason. So let's change gears again a little bit and talk about the FAST exam. So in terms of the FAST exam, uh, Dr. Chenkin, you, you work at a level one trauma center. First, can you review for us the simple algorithm that you use for your FAST exam in the multi-trauma patient, and then what the FAST exam does tell us and what it doesn't tell us? Sure. So the, the FAST exam has really become part of our primary survey in the trauma room for any multi-system trauma patient. The purpose of the FAST examination for trauma is to determine whether there's blood in the peritoneum or in the pericardial space. And so to do this, the FAST consists of four views, the right upper quadrant, left upper quadrant, pelvis, and pericardial views. When you're looking for peritoneal fluid, we start in the right upper quadrant, looking at the hepatorenal space, or what's often referred to as Morrison's pouch. The reason we start there is that this is the most likely spot that you will find free fluid if there's uh, intraperitoneal fluid. Basically, what you're going to do is visualize Morrison's pouch. You're going to do a slow, steady sweep through it, looking for any black or hypoechoic stripes in between the kidney and the liver. If that's negative, you then proceed on to the left upper quadrant. Here, you're going to visualize the splenorenal space, as well as the subdiaphragmatic recess. In the left upper quadrant, the subdiaphragmatic space is actually the most dependent area, so it's very important to not only look between the spleen and the kidney, but as well as between the spleen and the diaphragm. If those are negative, then you proceed on to looking at the pelvis, looking at the retrovesicular space in men, or the pouch of Douglas in women. 
although it's rare to find fluid isolated to the pelvis that you don't see elsewhere in the abdomen. If at any spot you see uh, evidence of intraperitoneal fluid, you can stop your scan, it's a positive scan, and you can proceed on. The order in which you actually perform this scan depends on the clinical context. So if I have a patient who has penetrating trauma anywhere near their cardiac box, the first place I'm going to look at is the pericardium. As opposed to the multisystem blunt trauma patient, uh, I'm going to start with the abdominal scan for them, as uh, pericardial tamponade is extremely rare in those patients. In addition to the um, traditional fast we've already referred to is the extended fast or e-fast, and this is also commonly performed at my center. And it basically involves also scanning the hemithoraces, looking for signs of hemothorax as well as uh, pneumothorax. And this can be very quickly added on to your standard fast exam and give you a lot of additional information. In terms of the algorithm you use in terms of decision-making, if you have a positive scan or a negative scan, what to do next? Can you just give us that algorithm? Sure. So in an unstable patient, uh, the FAST exam can give you very rapid uh, triage decisions. If you have an unstable, hemodynamically unstable patient uh, who has a positive FAST exam, free fluid in their abdomen, these are patients that are going to go straight to the operating room. And they generally don't need any other investigations done other than perhaps some blood drawn so that um, they can get a blood cross match done. This is probably the group that has the most impact from having a FAST exam done rapidly at the bedside as it allows faster disposition to definitive treatment. In a hemodynamically stable patient, the FAST probably has different utility depending on where you work. At my center, if the patient is hemodynamically stable and has a positive FAST, they will likely go to the CT scanner to further delineate their injuries. And if they have anything that needs operative repair, that would uh, happen after that. If they have a negative FAST, depending on the nature of their injuries, they often will still get a CT scan if they have severe multi-system trauma. However, in a patient who has minor trauma with a negative FAST, some practitioners would feel comfortable observing that patient and performing serial FAST exams and serial observations, serial examinations, and in some cases, uh, selectively avoiding the need for CT scan in those patients. Okay, great. And so FAST, like you said, is the most useful in the unstable patient with a positive exam. What are some of the things that FAST misses or what does it not tell us? So it's really important to understand that the FAST is not a perfect test and there are limitations uh, to the FAST exam. FAST cannot distinguish between types of fluid in the abdomen. So ascites will appear black just like blood does. So you do have to use your clinical correlation. If the patient has a history of known ascites, and you're seeing fluid in the abdomen. This may be blood, but it also may be their chronic ascites. The FAST exam does not reveal the source of the fluid, so it doesn't help to tell you where this fluid is coming from. It just tells you that there is blood there. The FAST exam is also not good at identifying specific solid organ injury, so you're not going to use your ultrasound to try and determine uh, whether you have a splenic laceration. We're not sufficiently trained for those types of determinations, and it's really not relevant immediately to us in our care. Uh, the FAST exam will miss hollow viscous injury, so you cannot use FAST to definitively rule out a hollow viscous injury in a trauma patient. In addition, it's very difficult to interrogate the retroperitoneal space, so a patient may have significant retroperitoneal hemorrhage that is not detected with your FAST exam. And probably one of the biggest limitations of the FAST is that it is operator-dependent and patient-dependent, and so patients who are very obese or perhaps have subcutaneous emphysema tracking down from a pneumothorax, 
may pose challenges to your skin. So just to review here, some of the limitations of FAST are that it can't distinguish blood from ascites, you can't tell the source of the fluid or determine the precise grade or type of injury, it's not good to diagnose hollow viscous injuries, and it can't assess for retroperitoneal blood. Dr. Chenkin is now going to review some of the pitfalls when it comes to FAST. If a patient comes in who has an obvious need to go to the operating room, has peritonitis, has you know multiple gunshot wounds to the abdomen and showing signs of shock, these are patients that doing a FAST in the trauma room is really just delaying their definitive care. And in those cases, it would be inappropriate to perform a FAST when you know the patient needs to go for an exploratory laparotomy regardless of your findings. Um, so I think that's probably the most important uh, pitfall for the FAST. There are some other ones that you need to be aware of. The FAST is really only sensitive for detecting fairly large amounts of fluid in the abdomen. So studies show between 250 to 500 cc's are required before you're going to see obvious signs on your ultrasound. And this may take a while to become apparent. So one of the big pitfalls um, of using a FAST is that it's not really a one point in time test. Um, you really should be using it serially in your patients. And uh, if you need to, you can put them in a bit of Trendelenburg to increase the sensitivity of your scan as well. But you should be following it along. You should never call a FAST negative based on a single scan, and you should really follow it over time. Patients who've had previous surgery and have lots of scarring and adhesions in their abdomen um, may not have pockets of fluid in the traditional spots that we look at. So you should be very cautious about calling a negative FAST in those types of patients. Another pitfall is patients who present uh, after delay after their injury. Blood will initially look hypoechoic or black on ultrasound, but after hours go by, that blood begins to clot and coagulate and can actually take on the texture of a solid organ. Uh, so you have to be quite careful if a patient presents late, you may not see that classic black space between the liver and kidney in Morrison's pouch. The corollary of that is if a patient presents really early, then they might have a negative fast and goes to the importance of doing serial exams. Absolutely. Is that early on there might not be enough blood there to detect on fast, but if you if you follow them along and repeat the scans and then it will become apparent. Yeah, like a lot of things in ultrasound, I think serial exams are really important, and this is one of the key areas. One of the biggest pitfalls that I've seen, and there's uh, now studies supporting this, is that because the FAST is done so commonly by emergency physicians, other people are now trying to perform these skills with very limited training. And there is a very interesting study in the Journal of Trauma in 2010 that did a survey of all general surgery residents in Canada who were performing FAST exams routinely for their trauma patients and asked them how much training they had for their, their FAST exams and how comfortable they felt. And interestingly, only 39% of these residents felt comfortable using the results of their FAST exam in clinical decision making. And I think that really just speaks to the fact that while in emergency medicine we've adopted a very rigorous set of standards for quality assurance, the same may not be said for a lot of different specialties. And we have to be very careful um, when you're managing a trauma patient, just because somebody tells you that the FAST is negative, you really should have a look at what they're doing. And um, sometimes it's pretty shocking what you see. Just another pitfall that I've seen is the perinephric fat as well. In the moment of haste when people are looking, they see a stripe around the kidney and they get concerned. And then just something else to think about 
is if you can't get a good image, why can't you in the experienced hand? And I have, in first hand, attempted to get a right upper quadrant view and not been able to get it at all and questioned what I was doing and what was up with the anatomy. And the fact of the matter was that a bullet had introduced air into that view. And so, you know, you have to kind of keep your wits about you. And as you become more comfortable with these views, uh, you know, trust yourself and say, you know, something's not quite right here. All right, let's move on to our last case. This is a case of an 83-year-old male with a history of hypertension, diabetes, ischemic stroke, and moderate dementia who's transferred to your ED from a nursing home via ambulance at 9 p.m., the nursing home notes state that that day, the patient complained of diffuse abdominal pain and vomited non-bilious emesis twice. His last bowel movement was that morning and normal. There was no fever, no urinary symptoms, no chest pain, and no shortness of breath. He had no history of prior surgery. On exam, vitals were normal except for a heart rate of 110. The cardiovascular and respiratory exams were unremarkable. The abdominal exam revealed normal bowel sounds, no distension, mild diffuse tenderness, and no peritoneal signs. An ECG, chest x-ray, and abdominal x-ray were all unremarkable, and the blood work showed a white blood cell count of 14,000 with normal lights, including calcium, normal liver enzymes, and a normal lactate. So this is the kind of patient that uh, at North York General we see every shift. So Dr. Hall, at, at this point, what, what kind of diagnoses are you thinking about? So, of course, the elderly with abdominal pain is our favorite landmine. They're, they're an undifferentiated trap that have a lot of potentially fatal etiologies that are resistant to our uh, available history and physical. And unfortunately, plain films and blood work are neither sensitive nor specific and don't help us out in a lot of cases. Uh, so with this patient, we're going to worry about vascular issues like a AAA and bowel ischemia. We have to think about uh, bowel obstruction, urinary or renal obstruction. The elderly, we can't, mustn't forget, they can get cholecystitis and appendicitis. Certainly uh, metabolic conditions can uh, give us this kind of pain. Um, undiagnosed metastatic uh, lesions, especially to the spine, can fool you. Um, and, uh, of course, there's always the cases like shingles that humble the first doctor and make the second doctor who sees the patient look like a superstar. And then things that can happen in the chest, like pneumonia and other chest conditions, can present as abdominal pain. And, of course, uh, cardiac disease is something you don't want to forget to uh, check for as well. So uh, these people have a plethora of uh, potential problems that we can't afford to miss in the eMERGE. Right. So this is, of course, where our emergency ultrasound comes in to help us out. So let's start with AAA. You'd mentioned AAA. So we should be thinking of AAA in any patient over the age of 50 who comes in with abdominal flank or back pain, including those patients over 50 who look like renal colic, especially if they have a history of hypertension or smoking. That We all know that palpating for a AAA has a very low sensitivity. And so doing the ultrasound can help improve that sensitivity significantly. And of course, when a patient's unstable, that you can't get to the CT scanner, then the ultrasound is ideal. Can you just review for us the basic criteria for the AAA rule-in, rule-out, and what some of the key pitfalls of emergency ultrasound for AAA are? You know, looking for a AAA is just one of those things that just makes you happy the first time you do it. Uh, in particular, the first time you pick one up, it just makes you feel good as, a, as an emergency doctor because you're actually you're finding something real, and it makes a big difference. 
To find a AAA, you start at the diaphragm, start up at the xiphoid, and you go in the transverse position. You locate the aorta. It's just anterior to the spine, of course. It's thick-walled, non-compressible, and there's no respiratory variability. You slide down slowly until you've seen the bifurcation of the aorta. It's not very complicated. You keep it in the middle of the screen. If the outer wall is ever bigger than three centimeters, you have yourself an aortic aneurysm. Now, that doesn't give you any information about whether this is ruptured. It doesn't tell you anything else. It doesn't say the age or whether there's a clot inside or anything else that's happening. But by definition, you now have an aortic aneurysm. You can't miss any of the aorta. And if you have trouble with bowel gas, that's probably one of the more common problems. What you have to do is press down hard into the bed and hold it there. The gas is likely going to move out of the way if the patient doesn't first. But uh, if you hold the probe down for about 10 or 20 or 30 seconds even, you are likely to see the aorta in its entirety. And that is, of course, what's necessary. It's a pretty straightforward uh, exam. And the only other thing I'd say is, Dr. Hellman, you mentioned several of the patient populations who are at risk for this. I would add uh, syncope in the patient who's older than 50. It's certainly in our experience Many of the AAAs that we've picked up have presented as syncope alone without any abdominal pain or back pain, and they'll be surprised at how often you pick these things up. We're talking about uh, uh, something that's retroperitoneal. When it ruptures, it tends to rupture into the retroperitoneal space, which you can't visualize very well uh, with ultrasound. So the majority of uh, ruptures, you're not going to see free fluid uh, in the abdomen. You will see it on occasion, but it's uh, certain you can't depend on that to make the diagnosis. So... The bedside ultrasound is good for diagnosing an aneurysm, and with the right clinical presentation, it could be ruptured, but it's not, it's not good at telling you if, if it's ruptured. So, Dr. Hall, one of the other things you mentioned in the differential was cholecystitis. Now, cholecystitis is actually the second most common cause of a surgical belly after bowel obstruction in the elderly. And as we all know very well, the signs and symptoms of cholecystitis, as many other diagnoses in the elderly, can be very subtle. After the age of 60, about a quarter of people in the general population will have gallstones, and there's no, there's no clinical or lab findings, including leukocytosis, fever, or a positive Murphy's sign that will sufficiently be able to rule in or rule out acute cholecystitis. First, how easy or difficult is it to see gallstones and the signs of cholecystitis on your bedside ultrasound? And do you think emergency docs should be using bedside ultrasound to help them with their decision-making when it comes to cholecystitis? This is a great test for emerge docs to learn, I think. There is a learning curve. This is not something you can expect to you know, see one do one. This, there is a learning curve to generating quality images of the gallbladder. But once you've achieved that and you can generate a quality image of the gallbladder, um, you can properly interrogate it and see clinically significant stones. I, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's valuable in those undifferentiated, especially elderly abdominal pains where especially if you're thinking sepsis and you're trying to localize a source. I've had several patients where it, it, I immediately figured out what the source of the sepsis was. I mean, clinically, I didn't know beforehand and was able to go down the right path. But it, it, you know, it requires good technique and you have to be patient and, and sweep through the gallbladder uh, properly to detect small stones. Uh, and there's other signs. So there's a sonographic Murphy sign, which can, is far more useful in my opinion than the clinical Murphy sign, where you actually are pressing with the probe on what you know is the gallbladder. And if it's giving you definitive pain, localized pain maximal right at that spot, and they've got stones, that the combination of those two things has got a high predictive value for someone having cholecystitis. Like I had mentioned in presenting the case, up to a quarter of 
elderly people will have gallstones. And so it's difficult, you know, if you have some, an elderly patient presenting with belly pain and you see gallstones, those could be totally incidental. So in terms of the actual ultrasound findings, one you said is the sonographic Murphy sign. Then there's, in terms of the radiology department ultrasounds, their criteria are that, the thickened gallbladder wall, the fluid around the gallbladder. So that's, right. that's what they'll look for. And I would suggest all those are quite possible for us to do as well. I routinely do them. As part of your assessment, if you're going to assessing the right upper quadrant and looking at the gallbladder, you should look for signs of gallbladder wall thickening, which is done in the transverse or short axis view, and look for uh, gallbladder dilation uh, and look for uh, a pericholecystic fluid, bearing in mind that no single feature is good enough in terms of sensitivity and specificity to hang your hat on. So again, they're all data points that you have to incorporate together. Okay. Yeah, I was amazed to find out that radiology department ultrasounds have not very good sensitivity or specificity for cholecystitis. I mean, I read numbers like around 90% sensitivity and around 80% specificity for the radiology department read ultrasound. Yeah, there's a yeah. study in the emergency medicine literature in 2010 that compared emergency physician diagnosis of cholecystitis compared to the ultrasound radiology department. And the sensitivities and specificities when you look at them are not 100%. They're around 87% for sensitivity, 82% for specificity. But they were basically identical to the radiologist's sensitivity and specificity. So this is by no means a perfect test, uh, even in the hands of the radiologist. Right. But we're performing at the level of a sonography technologist and a radiologist in terms of answering that clinical question. Okay. So yeah. sufficient to say in a patient that has a low pretest probability for cholecystitis and you have a perfectly normal right upper quadrant emergency scan, are you comfortable enough to rule out cholecystitis based on that? Yeah, I am. I mean, they can have intermittent biliary colic. And you know what? Missing one or two of those isn't the end of the world. But in terms of the acute cholecystitis that sure, you don't yeah. want to miss, I'm quite comfortable with that okay. scan. As so well. there, there's, there's definite utility there. In the patient that has high pretest probability and you do find signs of cholecystitis on your exam, then that's a good rule-in test. I guess there's that whole gray area in the middle where then you might go on to a, a radiology department scan knowing that their sensitivity and specificity isn't that great either. So I think it's very operator-dependent. I think once that operator has the skill set to do that, then I, I think it's part of our practice. It becomes part of emergency medicine. I think that as we do this, though, some other things are becoming apparent that maybe haven't made their way into the literature as much yet. Making sure we get a good look at the neck of the gallbladder, which is often where people will miss small stones, and then seeing if those stones move. Some advanced operators are now getting the patient to move in real time and watching to see if that stone seems like it's obstructive or if it's moving. So, I mean, there's, there's still work to be done, but this is definitely something that we've, we've kind of taken the ball with and run with. The other thing we were saying about gallstones, if you see them, it doesn't necessarily mean it's cholecystitis. The converse is true. I mean, we've all seen cases of cholecystitis without gallstones, you know, where it's sludge, for example. You just have to keep in mind the pretest probability and all the variability in presentations that we can see in these patients. That's cholecystitis. The other not so uncommon diagnosis we see in the elderly is appendicitis. And this is something that I'm teaching the residents all the time is that appendicitis is the third most common cause of a surgical belly in the elderly. And we all tend to think that appendicitis is only seen in young people. In terms of working up appendicitis with imaging, 
there's been quite a shift over the last 20 years from doing no imaging and taking everyone to the OR to scanning everyone who has an abdomen and pain to then doing an ultrasound first and then determining who needs to go to the OR and who might need a CAT scan. Now we're going to throw another wrench into the whole thing and bring in emergency ultrasound. My first reaction to doing emergency ultrasound for appendicitis is that it's just complicating the waters. We'll start with Dr. Fisher. What do you think about the utility of emergency ultrasound for the diagnosis of appendicitis? I think, again, it's a piece of the puzzle. So you're going to be utilizing clinical features, laboratory features. You're going to build a pretest. And where I see it working now from the literature, if you look at a FOX study from 2008 of adults, the sensitivity was 65%, but the specificity was 90%. And that's against the gold standard of pathology. Similarly, Adam Sivitz has a paper that he's working on that he released an abstract that in 67 patients, they had an 82% sensitivity, 87% specificity. So not to throw too many numbers around, but I think what that tells us is that we're dealing with something that has a higher specificity. So what can its potential role be? Well, as an emergency doctor, if I have a high pretest, I think I have a child that has an appy and everything points in that direction. I'm going to put the ultrasound probe on and I'm going to identify an appendicitis, hopefully. And what is that going to accomplish? It's going to decrease the time to the OR. And it's going to decrease potential radiation exposure the child may have had if they needed a CT scan. But it also maintains what surgeons are looking for. And that's a very low false positive rate in the OR because I'm showing them that there's an appendicitis there. So I kind of think of it as similar to how we look at testicular torsion. I think we can rule in with a high pretest probability. I don't think our skill set as a group is potentially there yet for ruling out. In select patients, so kids, uh, kids, young females, definitely give it a go. And if you see a positive, you know, get your surgeon on the phone, see if you can conv- convince them to stop the radiation now. But uh, I think exactly, we can't rule out. We're not there yet by any means. Certainly in adults, where you know the obesity is just going to make it next to impossible to get a ha- high quality scan in a lot of our patients. I'm just going to play a bit of devil's advocate. I'm just trying to imagine me sticking an ultrasound probe on and saying, "Oh yeah, that looks like appendicitis," and then calling up the surgeon and telling them, yes, I have a patient with appendicitis, and they'll say, well, based on what? And I'll say, based on my bedside emergency ultrasound exam. And I can't imagine them saying, okay, I'll take the patient to the OR. I can very well imagine them saying, I don't care about your bedside ultrasound. I I need some real imaging, quote, unquote, for this patient. And that's the evolution of a lot of our scans. So do you remember when we first started doing AAA scans? That was the initial vascular surgeon's opinion when you called on the phone. It was like, well, fine, I, you know, that I need a formal scan or I need something else that's not good enough. But after you've shown them enough good hits, like enough enough positives that came for real, they started accepting it. So there's a, there's a, a, there's a process here and an evolution that has to work its way through the whole referral chain. And I think if you can demonstrate a skill where you're repeatedly right on your calls, then they'll start believing you. And I think it'll apply to this too with select patients where we can rule in and we are careful about it with high pretest probabilities and you get enough positive hits, they're going to start saying, fine, and, you know, take a picture. I always take a, if it's a positive, take a picture and say, you know, why don't you come down and have a look at it? And if you don't believe me over the phone and that often, that'll help convince them. So we've talked about appendicitis. We've talked about cholecystitis. We've talked about AAA. The other diagnosis that I have to admit, embarrassingly enough, that I've missed quite a few times in the elderly is urinary retention. I've given a 
few talks on everyone's favorite subject, low back pain. And one of the things I emphasize is the importance of a post-void residual and helping to rule out, call it equina syndrome. You know, traditionally we've used a Foley to measure the post-void residual. And if you get less than 100 cc's, then you've essentially ruled out cauda equina syndrome. The idea of using an emergency ultrasound to test for a post-void residual or to look for urinary retention, I think is very intriguing. Can you just review for us how you might use the emergency ultrasound to first determine whether someone's in urinary retention and second to measure a post-void residual? Sure. Uh, I'm going to go out of limb here. I'm going to say don't do it. That's my answer. My answer is don't do it. And I'll tell you why. It depends on the shape of your bladder. And if you use the wrong coefficient in the formula you use when you're measuring this, then you're going to be out by about 20%. So I'm not really comfortable with that degree of variability. So a bit more detail. There's actually a lot of literature on this. Uh, the urologists have been looking at this for a long time, unsurprisingly. It would have huge utility if you were running a, a spinal ward, for example, where people can go into retention all the time. I mean, obviously, much beyond emergency medicine would be a great thing to have. There are now bladder scanners out there with their own uh, formula sort of embedded within the hardware of the uh, ultrasound machine, which will spit out a number. Put the ultrasound machine over the bladder, and it tells you this is how many cc's you have left in the bladder. The bladder is a very elastic kind of a structure, and as a result has, well, at least four sort of typical shapes have been described. It can be either cuboid, it can be elliptoid, it can be triangular, which is kind of hard to imagine, or just non-specific. So predictably, if it, was, if it was always a sphere, it'd be easy. It would be sort of four thirds pi r cubed. I guess that's the, you know, it'd be great. You could just measure the radius and then you'd be all set to go. Even if it was elliptoid, it would be the same thing. It would be very easy to put in your three numbers and your coefficient, and then you'd get a number spat out. The problem is, as I said, there are these variants, and uh, they're common. If you're uh, interested in a bladder volume of approximately 100, for example, so you're worried about urinary retention in the setting of possible cauda equina, personally, I would be much more comfortable with the gold standard of, I want to know exactly how much urine is in the bladder. I don't want to be guessing at it, and I certainly don't want to be out by 20%. Now, again, it depends. You may well get the shape right, and if it is a perfectly spherical bladder, you're A-OK, -okay, and you can definitely measure it. Conversely, if I was running a spinal ward and I was going to do this every day, then the damage that I'm doing by doing all these Foley catheters, absolutely, I'd have to take that into account. For me, I don't see possible cauda equina on a daily basis. And uh, if I'm going to rule out cauda equina, I want to know exactly how much urine's in the bladder. I'm going to disagree on this one. I think there is a role for it. And it's this. If you see an empty bladder, you can be pretty confident it's pretty close to empty. So if, you're, if your threshold is 100 mils, and you see something that even with literature suggesting a 15 to 35% variability in terms of how, how good your, your, your scans are, either automated or by our, uh, a manual machine, if, if it's really empty, it's really empty. So even if we're off by 30%, it's still less than 100. So if I see a very empty bladder, on the other hand, if I see one really full, so there's no doubt it's way above 100, I think that's useful. I don't need to put a catheter in. Anything in between, put the catheter in. So I think that there is a role for this in people at the extremes. They have an extremely high post-void residual or an extremely low post-void residual. I think it's accurate enough to make that call, but for everything in between, I agree, the gold standard I'd still go with, but I do think there's a role for the extremes and everything in between is, is a gray zone. The good news in kids is that we're often looking to see whether or not it's full and yeah. mm -hmm. uh, make sure there's something in there. And, and you know, the same technique applies. We're looking at the bladder when we want to get that calf urine sample and we want to make sure we don't do a dry 
cath urine and, and, you know, put the patient through something unnecessarily. And so just out to everybody, it's the same technique. It works wonderfully if you have a dry child and you're a little concerned about whether or not there's going to be uh, urine in that bladder, just take a look. So the bottom line when it comes to determining whether a patient is in urinary retention or not, and whether they have a post-void residual using your emergency ultrasound, is that it is good for the extremes if you're confident in your skills for a bedside ultrasound. So if you find zero or close to zero urine in the bladder for someone who's just had a full void, then you can be quite confident in ruling out things like cauda equina syndrome. On the other hand, if you have someone with a post-void residual where their bladder is very full after they've tried to void, then you can be quite sure that they do have urinary retention. This is also useful for kids who are thinking about doing a suprapubic tap who are dry and you want to make sure that there's enough urine in there that you can get the tap. Next, Dr. Chenkin is going to talk about the usefulness of emergency ultrasound for procedures in the emergency department. All right, so we've presented all our cases on emergency medicine cases here, but uh, before we go, we have lots more good stuff to talk about when it comes to ultrasound. And some of the most useful applications for emergency ultrasound are in procedures that we do in the emergency department. Dr. Chenkin, what does the literature say about improved success, patient satisfaction, complication rates, and those important things that we need to know about for the most useful ultrasound-guided procedures? Sure. So I think in general, ultrasound overall provides a much safer way to perform many procedures, and I think many of them are going to be standard practice to perform under ultrasound as time goes on. Uh, It also really allows a a safer learning environment for our trainees and allows us to supervise more junior trainees in a safer way, especially in the world of sort of see one, do one, teach one. This really adds that level of safety on for uncommonly performed procedures. Um, The first procedure I think that is extremely valuable to use ultrasound for is for vascular access. And when I say vascular access, I'm referring to central lines, arterial lines, and peripheral IVs. But really, most of the evidence is focused on uh, the use of ultrasound for inserting central lines. And this has really caused a a major shift in the way that we practice. And this is probably the most evidence-supported ultrasound procedure that, if it's not already, will certainly become the standard of care in the future. In fact, in many places, if you're not using your ultrasound to put in your line, you actually have to document why you didn't use ultrasound, uh, because it it is uh, so supported by the evidence. Uh, We know when putting in central lines, complications are not uncommon. I'm sure all of us have seen bad complications. I personally have seen a a stroke in a 30-year-old female who had a subclavian line inserted into the artery, and uh, no one wanted to take it out uh, until they saw the vascular surgeon, and by the next day, the patient had had a a major stroke. I've also seen uh, cardiac arrest from tension pneumothorax. All kinds of line mishaps happen, and and these are not uncommon. The literature says the complication rate is about 10% when using the landmark technique. So if this isn't something you're already doing in your practice, I think this is, should be high on your list of things to learn and can be learned fairly easily in uh, various workshops and courses that you could take. The rationale for using ultrasound is that no matter how long you've been in practice, you can never get a complication rate of 0% when you're putting in a central line. And the reason for that is that you have no idea what's under the skin uh, without looking first. And when we started using ultrasound, all of us uh, have seen significant variations in anatomy. Up to 5% of patients will have their internal jugular vein actually medial to their carotid artery. And no matter how good you are with your landmark technique, you're never going to get that line in. And you're probably going to cause a lot of harm to your patient uh, in the process of trying to insert it. 
So just to summarize the literature on ultrasound-guided central lines, um, there are several meta-analyses that are, have been published, and they all uh, show the same thing, that emergency ultrasound reduces your complication rate by about 43% when uh, compared to the landmark technique for central lines. It reduces the failure rate by about 14%. It improves your first attempt success rate by about 60%. It actually shortens your procedure time because you can get the needle in so quickly. And finally, it reduces the number of attempts that you have to make on average by about 1.5. So this is really something that's probably become, going to become standard practice in the future. And I really encourage those, there are people out there that are not currently using this routinely. It, it has a learning curve to it, but it's certainly within the domain of emergency medicine, physical skills. And I think everybody should go out and learn how to do this. I'd say if you're alone and you're not familiar with this technique, although it's not as good as doing it in real time, you can still use your ultrasound to mark where the vein is and identify the anatomy. Um, there are studies that compared, to that compared that static technique to the dynamic technique, and it's not quite as good as the dynamic technique. So if you, if you can do it, I, I highly recommend you learn how to use your ultrasound probe in real time to watch the needle enter the vein. If you're not comfortable holding both the probe and the needle at the same time, you can get somebody to help you and use a two-operator technique. If you're not familiar with using ultrasound for procedures, um, this may give you some help at the beginning. Although, if you do this frequently enough and, and um, gain some skills at this, you will quickly find that going to a one-operator technique or actually holding the probe yourself and manipulating the probe gives you much more information, allows you to make real-time adjustments, and actually is probably an easier thing to do in the long run. But if you're just learning this at the beginning, that is something that you can do to just focus on one thing at a time. The other useful thing with ultrasound is allowing you to rotate the neck into uh, the position that really optimizes the position of the internal jugular and the carotid. A lot of times I see trainees over-rotating the neck, and when you do this, this brings the internal jugular vein right on top of the carotid. So even with ultrasound in those situations, there's a high rate of uh, puncturing through the posterior wall and ending up in the carotid artery, even if you see the needle going through the internal jugular vein. And that's sort of a common beginner mistake that people tend to make. So you can use ultrasound to help you rotate the neck into a position where you uh, have less overlap between the vessels. My understanding is that the central line that has the least complications is a subclavian without ultrasound. Now you throw an ultrasound in the mix... Your IJ is your go-to line in the area of ultrasound, certainly in adults, and your femoral would be a backup. The subclavian is extremely difficult to do with ultrasound guidance, and uh, I wouldn't recommend it, certainly not to the beginner, because the uh, the, the clavicle, just uh, the bone just obscures your view. Right. What I'd recommend is you may want to revisit the supracovicular approach, which has fallen out of favor in the last 20 years in the era of blind, but I think it's going to make a resurgence with ultrasound guidance because it's actually a it's a very reasonable approach to do and um, the, well, the worry always was about pneumothorax but now we can see where the pleura is and we can make sure by following our needle down that we don't hit it so um, i would suggest that people who are in love with the subclavian may want to consider the supraclavicular approach if they don't want to do an ij we used to say ultrasound guided and now it's really ultrasound enhanced because not only are you can you use the needle in plane so you can follow your entire needle in but you can also track where the wire goes and you can confirm you're in the vein, which is critically important in patients you know, that are low flow states. And then after your, your catheter is in place, you can make sure that one, it's in the right position. You can look at the heart and check where it is in relation to the right atrium and right ventricle. And you can also make sure there's no pneumothorax. And so I think again, when you think about patient care, the ultrasound just takes you so much further than we were before.
So what are some of the other ultrasound guided procedures that you think have changed the way we practice or should change the way we practice? So one of the other ultrasound guided procedures that I've incorporated into my almost daily practice is using ultrasound for nerve blocks. In the emergency department, we don't often come up with the stellar diagnosis or provide definitive treatment to our patients. But I think one of the most important things we do on a daily basis is alleviate pain. And you can really make a big difference in patients' experience in the emergency department if you can take their pain away. And all too often, I'm seeing old patients who are getting just loaded up on high doses of morphine, becoming delirious in the emergency department, when all they needed was a very simple nerve block to to help them out. And this is something I think that, again, we should all be uh, learning how to do. The nerve block that I'm most fond of is the femoral nerve block for hip fractures, or it's sometimes referred to as the three-in-one block, if you're also blocking the lateral femoral cutaneous and the obturator nerves. There's quite a bit of evidence in the emergency medicine literature that shows that this is a good thing to do. They've compared it to morphine, and it provides faster relief of pain, reduces the amount of morphine that you have to provide. And there are best practice reviews that suggest that the femoral nerve block should be routine practice for all hip fractures in the emergency department. Um, There's also many other nerve blocks that allow painless procedures, such as blocking the nerves in the forearm for painful wrist and hand procedures. So why should we use ultrasound for these nerve blocks? There's several studies now that have compared ultrasound to just landmark technique for nerve blocks, especially for the femoral nerve block, and they show that it has a faster onset time. So one study showed 13 minutes compared to 27 minutes. It actually improves the sensory blockade because you're delivering more of that local anesthetic right around the nerve as opposed to guessing where it's going to end up. Uh, It improves the success rate of the block, uh, 95% compared to 80% with the landmark technique. It improves the safety. We're delivering large volumes of local anesthetic right next to the femoral artery. So obviously uh, injecting that amount of local anesthetic into the intravascular space could be potentially dangerous. So this allows you to confirm uh, with the ultrasound, ultrasound that your needle is not in the artery or vein. And it allows you to use less anesthetic as well. So you can use 20 cc's as opposed to 30 cc's to provide an equal block um, because that local anesthetic is going right in the spot that you want it. You don't need your recess room. You don't need a second physician to help you with the anesthetic. You don't need the nurse in the monitor. You can do this in the hallway if you need to in a busy on a busy shift. It's about less time than you would spend suturing somebody. Mm-hmm. I think it's worth investing the effort in learning how to do it. Dr. Fisher, in the pediatric population, I imagine that doing nerve blocks with ultrasound guidance can be a great benefit. Can you just review for us the use of ultrasound-guided nerve blocks in kids? Sure. I think you talked at the beginning about a revolution, and I couldn't agree more. This is really a revolution in pediatric pain control, which we all know is a big problem. The nerve blocks that seem to come up most frequently are the forearm, where we're looking at the median radial and ulnar nerves, femoral, and then the popliteal sciatic, which gets the, gets the foot. And then as the skill set improves, of course, we're looking at intercoastal blocks and supraclavicular blocks. But I think for just everyday users that are just familiarizing themselves with ultrasound, forearm, femoral, and popliteal are good places to start. They're powerful blocks. And I'll I'll give you an example. A four-year-old child presented to us. He'd been left kind of unattended and had a firecracker explode in his hand and had considerable damage done to his hand. He presented to the ED and had already been given four morphine kind of en route, and that hadn't touched him. He was beside himself with pain. So the nurses quickly gave him internasal fentanyl, which was a nice bridge, while we literally got the ultrasound machine and performed a forearm nerve block with bupivacaine. 
And within 10 minutes, that patient had no pain in his hand. And he remained that way for four hours until the OR was able to take him on a busy trauma day. And so that was really a sentinel event for our department where we saw how powerful this technique could be in pain control in a patient that could have potentially been sedated for that entire time previously or given very high dose narcotics, which could have, of course, led to other compromise. The thing that comes up most frequently when we talk about pediatric nerve blocks is how much agent to give. And so it's usually it's 0.25 to half a mil per kilo of 2% lidocaine or 0.2 5% bupivacaine, and then this is half-dosed if you're under six months. Um, the other thing is that, of course, like all these nerve blocks, we prefer to do it in plane because in pediatrics especially, you want to see where that needle tip is. Could you just give us a brief idea of how these forearm blocks are performed? So you take the patient's arm and you take your high-frequency, high-resolution linear probe and you start kind of right at the wrist and you're bringing the probe back proximally towards the mid forearm. And you're gonna find what the median nerve kind of right in the center of that form is kind of a hyperechoic honeycomb structure. And in most patients, it kind of pops right out, especially if you have a preset on your machine, it's just gonna glow. And then what you're gonna do is find the radial on ulna. And the way to do that is to find the radial artery again in the wrist, trace it back proximally towards the mid forearm and on the radial side of that neurovascular bundle, you're gonna see a small triangular honeycomb. And sometimes it can be difficult to see, but you remember the classic vein artery nerve, and you're gonna find your nerve on the radial side of the radial artery. Now there is some anatomical variation, and sometimes you can get veins on each side of the nerve, and you don't wanna be thrown off by that. Uh, but again, you're looking for that hyperechoic honeycomb structure. And it's the same on the ulnar side. You're gonna find the ulnar artery traced back to the mid forearm proximally, and on the ulna side of that uh, neurovascular bundle, you're gonna find the nerve sitting on the ulnar side of the artery. So it's a pretty slick technique, but it does, especially when you're beginning, uh, you should have someone kind of coach you. Either you can do this through a course, or perhaps there's someone at your center that can help. Like I mentioned in the introduction, with the emergency ultrasound revolution, there comes controversy. I mean, it seems that emergency ultrasound has been advocated by someone somewhere for just about every indication you can think of. Some experts believe that the approach to education and quality assurance should be similar to the skill of reading ECGs or performing procedural sedation. That is, the less external regulation, the better. Others believe that we should develop a universal or national quality assurance, credentialing, and ongoing maintenance of standards program for emergency ultrasound that can make emergency ultrasound an accepted, valid paradigm shift that is fully recognized by radiologists and the rest of the medical community in general. So we'll go around the table and ask, where do you stand on how we should be educating our specialty and how we should be maintaining quality assurance for emergency ultrasound? My perspective comes out of my own training and, and the culture of ultrasound that I was a part of. And so I think it's important, like you said, to recognize the distinction between education training and then quality assurance. I think like everything we do in emergency medicine, ultrasound as well should be held to a reasonable standard of quality assurance. And I don't think that should be any different than anything else. And there should be ongoing quality assurance. And I think that's important because our profession continues to change. But I feel like it's pretty similar to ECG, sedation skills, airway skills, 
plain film interpretation. There are many skills that require us to do things and to interpret things and that are part of our current EM certification, which e-ultrasound is now a part of. And we rely on these skills clinically and we bill for these skills. That's how we make our living. So as much as I love emergency ultrasound, to me, it's another skill, pure and simple. It uh, improves patient care, but it's not in any way unique. And so I think the distinction that's been drawn is kind of historical, political, and I think sometimes financial. When I think about education, for me, it's something that needs to be taught at the resident level and for peds emergency medicine at the fellow level. And it should be part of our standard training program because this is really the future. And I can appreciate the need for third parties and for some innovation and ideas as we get to the point where we're able to support that. But I'd like to use the golf analogy for, for ultrasound and that I don't feel like courses are enough. If you take a golf lesson, you really can't go out and play very well after. You need to be playing all the time. It helps to have someone coaching you. And certainly you can't just watch ESPN and golf, which is, I think, what, what's happening a lot. So I think it's important that we have ongoing teaching in the settings. And that's why it's important to target our trainees. And then we need to do a lot more work and see how we can be teaching our trainees best. I think we touched on it through most of our discussions today that we just don't have good training ideas yet and we don't know what is enough. As far as quality assurance goes, I think this is incredibly important. I think it's got to be robust. It's got to be ongoing. And this is easier done in academic centers. But for non-academic centers, I think there's some innovative solutions that are coming forward like cloud-based products. What are cloud-based products? So it allows a physician in a rural area to do ultrasound scans, put in a read, and have these read over the internet cloud by an expert at an academic center and get feedback. So there are those opportunities. But I think it should be the same standard as all our clinical work. So I think that we should look at ways to improve all our quality care, and ultrasound shouldn't be unique. One kind of hot button issue that I've been giving a lot of thought to and have had some discussions is about separate certification. And I know that people in Canada are, are very much aware of that. And I feel like separate certification is kind of a reaction to external pressure. And I think that in Canada especially, we need to be pretty careful. I think there's two groups of emergency medicine doctors that are learning emergency ultrasound. Those that are learning it as part of their training, so currently and in the future, and those that are practicing now. So for those that are learning it as their training and in the near future, I think certification for them is going to use unnecessary resources and increase the you know their time. It's a bit of a burden and there's limitations and, and strain already on our physicians in the healthcare system. But I also, also think it's a bit of a slippery slope to what our other skill sets are. Like if we're gonna do certification for emergency ultrasound, are we then going to go outside of our governing bodies and do certification for our airway skills, for our use of ECG? And so I think we just have to be careful of that as a group. For those that are practicing now, I think that emergency ultrasound should be established as part of the CME and the recertification process because, again, I think there's no real distinct difference between other skill sets. But I think it is important that we bring these people up to speed and we find ways to do that. So that was kind of a long dissertation, but it concerns me a little bit because I think certification and this push towards certification is kind of bad PR for us as emergency docs. It uh, kind of suggests to the rest of the medical community that perhaps we don't have the insight to you know, make judgments and to recognize the limitations of our tests, and so we need to do extra work to get there. 
And I think that's a slippery slope, as I said before, towards other aspects of our training and of our practice. I think part of this has evolved because we have two completely different sets of people we're instructing. We have the people that have been out in practice for a while and had no exposure to bedside ultrasound during their training. And that's a different population from the people that are being trained. And my analogy is like when laparoscopic procedures came to the surgical people, is that you had the guys who had been out doing open procedures the whole career and had no exposure to all the laparoscopic equipment. And then you have the guys coming through residency and they're learning it from the beginning. And I think how we tailor our certification or not certification, how we tailor quality assurance has to acknowledge those two different groups. And, and so I think that some type of certification process has been necessary for the people that have been out in practice and haven't been exposed. And it's to make sure they're at least getting some kind of uniform base level of training and demonstrating a competence in it. Um, I think that this is a transitory thing though. Uh, eventually with people getting their, their training all through the residency, we'll phase that out over time that we won't have to have these certifications. But I, I, I think it was the same with a lot of the surgeons out there that they had to demonstrate a competence before they could go doing, a, you know, they could go anywhere with this particular laparoscopic skill. And now they're all graduating with that skill. And so there's, there's no process there uh, that says, oh, we have to have this, this badge or that badge. I think that you're absolutely right in terms of making demands on certification uh, for a resident. It can be problematic. It's very resource intensive. And I think it brings up the other big debate that's going on right now, which is competency-based versus numbers. So do I need to do 50 supervised scans to get good at this? Or if I, if I get the hang of it in under 10 scans and I'm generating good images, am I done? And so I think that's, and that's a question that's coming up in edu, you know, residencies in general, how many years do you need? You know, if you're, if you're competent, you're competent. And so I think we need to develop better tools for assessing competence. And if we do have good tools for assessing, someone has met the competence in a particular ultrasound skill, then they're good to go. And so I think that applies through residency and beyond is that if we can have good ways to validate that this is, they, they have defined these things, the ability to generate an image that meets these quality standards, interpret it to a level that meets these standards and incorporate it into the clinical practice and cognitive uh, decision-making at a certain level, then they're good to go. And we don't have to focus on X numbers, certification badges or what have you. I mean, that's kind of how we try to work with a lot of our other skill sets. And I think that's what we're aiming to do eventually here, but we just haven't got there yet. We haven't defined, we haven't defined what, what means competence for a lot of these new skills yet. And I think as we do, then we'll be able to move away from certification and move towards, are you competent at it or not? My understanding is that a trend in emergency medicine education in general is competency-based training. And so this would sort of fit into that whole model. Dr. Chenkin, what's your take on future of emergency education and quality assurance? Well, I agree with a lot of the comments that have been made. I think this is something that's in evolution right now and probably if we were to sit around and discuss this in 10 years, it would be much less of an issue because the uh, training is, you know, it's started with practicing emergency physicians. It's now incorporated fully into the emergency medicine rural college training program and is a mandatory component um, that's fully testable on the rural college examinations as of, of a couple of years ago. And there is a trend now even moving towards undergraduate medical education, uh, learning the skill. So as these trainees come through the program, they're going to have these skills sort of innate, as uh, Dr. Fisher was saying, sort of on par with reading ECGs, reading chest x-rays. 
it seems right now that we're probably overcompensating a little bit. You know, I was involved in uh, setting up some workshops for the emergency medicine program this summer for our residents, and they probably had more seminars and training sessions on ultrasound than pretty much anything else um, that they learned about. And I can't imagine um, that they're spending this much time looking at chest x-rays and ECGs. So we're, we're certainly making sure that they have the skill set. And I think that's important because there is the occasional problem of residents who think of the ultrasound probe as a bit of a magic wand. And with minimal training, I've seen them sort of putting the probe on patients and thinking that nothing can hurt them as long as they have this ultrasound in their hand and perhaps being a bit overconfident. So it's absolutely essential because this is such a new skill to build it from the ground up to make sure that we have appropriate quality assurance steps in place. Certification being controversial right now, I think still has a role in at this day and age, but as time goes by and as this becomes a core skill, I think it probably will become less of a requirement and it will just become sort of one of the core skills that you're expected to know as you go out into practice. I do agree with Dr. Hall in that I think we need to get a better sense of what competence is with ultrasound. There are a few studies that looked at learning curves, for example, a learning curve of learning the gallbladder scan. And those can give you a rough idea, I think, to gauge how difficult a particular ultrasound technique is, whether it be sort of really easy versus moderately easy versus quite difficult. Um, but there's a huge variability amongst practitioners. And I've personally struggled, you know, supervising scans for people who just don't have very good hand-eye coordination or visuospatial orientation and certainly take much more practice than some of the residents who are coming through who have grown up in the video game era and can pick this up within 10 scans. So I think we need to have a better idea of what competence is and start building that into our certification process so that the people who just get it very early on don't need to go through the very labor-intensive process of getting full certification as well as identifying people that perhaps actually need more supervision in their early on in their training process and make sure that they have the skills they need to be safe when they actually go out and, and use this in practice. Just uh, Because just like any other skill that we have in our day-to-day -day practice, you have the potential of causing harm if you're using this improperly. Just like if you miss ST elevations on an ECG, you have the potential to cause harm. So we need to make sure that we have a process in place to uh, avoid that from happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I feel for the residents. I mean, when I was going through residency, Rosens and Tintinelli were these little textbooks, and now they've grown by at least 100%. So they've got more to learn in terms of their medical knowledge. They've got more to learn in terms of skills. But on the flip side, I think we are, as uh, emergency medicine community, getting better at educating our residents and I think this move towards competency-based skill learning is a step in the right direction. Dr. Hannum? I might have a slightly different perspective. I'm still the chief of my department, and as a result, I have a vested interest, as we all do, but uh, personally as well in ensuring safety in, in my department. And so I agree with everything that's been said so far, and certainly education uh, of the two streams has been a big issue, and that's certainly where we focused our efforts until now to ensure a consistent and high standard of education. That said, my sense is there's an evolution towards more QA, more quality assurance. I agree we don't have particularly robust quality assurance, I'll say in a general sense, for lots of things, for whether it's ECGs or for airway skills or anything else. I, I don't know that that obviates the need to do them just because we don't measure quality assurance or historically we haven't measured them that well doesn't mean we shouldn't in the future. 
I think that until recently, and even now, it can be a bit clunky, for lack of a better word. Uh, the mechanism used to measure these things uh, can be difficult, even if it's saving images. How the logistics work can really affect whether a QA program is going to be effective or not. So I, I agree that the education sta educational standards will become less of an issue as time goes on, like everything else. That said, patient safety is a big deal, and we're all being held to be more accountable, and I think that's, that's reasonable. And just because we haven't been measuring certain things in the past doesn't mean we shouldn't in the future. Okay, that was great. Yeah. <laughs> Except not, not enough fighting there. I was, no, you know, no, we're no, all too Canadian. <laughs> yes, I agree. We're all, all willing to agree too much. I didn't hear too many sorries in there. There should have been some more sorries to make it really Canadian. And for this month's quote of the month, we've got one from Peter Latham, who was a physician and educator in the 1800s. Fortunate, indeed, is the man who takes exactly the right measure of himself and holds a just balance between what he can acquire and what he can use, be it great or be it small. On the next episode, number 19, we're going to be talking with Dr. Anna Jarvis, who's the mother of pediatric emergency medicine in Canada, and Dr. Stephen Friedman, who's a very prominent researcher in GI emergencies in pediatrics. We're going to be talking about pediatric abdominal pain and all its different kinds of presentations. And before we go, just a quick announcement the Whistler Annual Update and Emergency Medicine Conference is coming February 19th to 22nd, 2012. This will be the 25th anniversary of one of the best emergency conferences in Canada put on by the University of Toronto with some of the best skiing in the world. This year, EM Cases guest experts Eric Latofsky, Joel Yaffe, David Carr, Shirley Lee, Paul Hannum, Anna Jarvis, Anil Chopra, and David McKinnon, as well as myself, We'll all be there giving talks. If you're interested in going to this conference, go to www.sites.cepdtoronto.ca backslash Whistler. Until next time, take it easy.